Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. So tonight, I'm really excited to have Greg Judy on with us. Greg is a grazing expert down the States. He, he does some amazing things. He's going to talk a little bit more about exactly what his operation is and, and what he sees tonight's topic looking like. And then, of course, we have Steve Kenyon. And Steve, I, I know him fairly well. Uh, he, so Steve's my husband and runs Greener Pastures Ranching. Between him and Greg, it should be some awesome conversation. And I think that is all. Steve, is there anything that I missed there? Yeah, no, thanks, Amber. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, really appreciate you showing up. We're going to have a fantastic evening tonight. I'm really excited because uh, Greg Judy is one of my long-term mentors. I remember I was fairly new into this, maybe five years into custom grazing, and I got the hold of this book. And this guy was doing what I was trying to do. And it was so cool to read some of the things that he had in there. I remember... I think there was a water system or something that I had set up and, and I read through his book and all of a sudden I figured out, really, there's such a thing as a gravity flow water system? What is that? And for five years, I spent, well, whatever, I bought this solar system for 22 grand and, or sorry, 22, two grand. And I moved the water trough about 40 feet and had a completely power-free, energy-free water system because I didn't see the picture. So it's amazing what you can get from mentors over the years. And I'm uh, appreciative of all the things Greg's done for us over the years. He's been a great mentor for a lot of people, and I'm really excited to have him on here tonight. So real quick, I guess you're from Clark, Missouri, and uh, very similar yeah. operation. He leases a bunch of land right? and, and does custom grazing. So we're very, I'm like his doppelganger in Canada. Um, I, I started it up before I knew anything about him, but boy, we our, our businesses and our models and everything are very similar. So I was really excited to read his, his uh, information. I'm going to let uh, Greg kind of introduce himself here a little bit more, but I'm, I know Greg's picked the topic of uh, regenerating land with ruminants. So that's going to be our starting point today, and I'm going to let Greg kind of introduce that and why he wants to discuss that tonight. So go ahead, Greg. Yeah, so uh, for those of you all new, uh, haven't been or heard of me too much, my wife Jan and I, we run a grazing operation here in central Missouri. So we're halfway between uh, St. Louis and Kansas City, and we are in the rolling hills. It's not farming land, in other words, you don't want to be tilling it but it makes really good grazing land. And so Jan and I kind of have a little sweet spot here. Uh, we were doing everything conventional back in the late 90s. Basically have a lot to owe to Alan Nation, a Stockman grass farmer owner. Uh, he wrote an article said, your sole purpose in life should not be to own the land, but to control it. And what he was talking about there folks was, you know, don't tie up all your equity in, in buying land. And so, it really woke me up and I got out and started looking around the neighborhood and long story short today, uh, Jan and I have uh, 18 farms. They're all within five miles of our house. And so we've been able to really leverage this lease land thing. But, you know, once you get the first lease and you do a good job with it, it's a really good sales model to bring other people online and, and get them interested in what you're doing. The topic tonight, you know, Steve asked me what I wanted to talk about was uh, healing land with ruminants, this regenerative agriculture. Folks, it's really starting to pick up steam. There's a lot of people getting excited about it, and rightfully so. I mean, if you look at 
the uh, economics of it. I mean, not only just the uh, what it does for our environment, but for your bottom line. I mean, we can't stay on our farms if we're not profitable. And to me, you know, if we can let the animals do a lot of the work, and it, it does come down to management. And you know, Steve, you you've done a lot of the same things that I've done, but. I tell you what, when I really woke up was when I realized the life in the soil. And that telling time for me was when I heard uh, Dr. Pat Richardson. Dr. Pat Richardson's out of uh, Texas, she was at Texas A&M, I believe it was. And she's a professor there. And uh, some of the things that she was showing, I mean, she was blowing up a microscope, 60X microscope showing the life in the soil and if we'll learn to feed the soil and not you know, poison it and stop putting all this spray down and not turning the soil. When you turn the soil, you're really setting yourself back. And so she was talking about massaging the soil, using the animal hooves to massage it and wake up the soil microbes. Ian was talking about, you know, we're not grass farmers, we're microbe farmers. So he was taking it down another level too. And so once I started focusing folks on what's living in the soil beneath our feet and taking care of it and making sure I keep the soil covered all the time, that's when things exploded for us. And that's, I, mean, I don't know where you want me to stop at that point. That's, that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight, Steve. Excellent. You bet. I mean, I, I went through the same thing. I uh, started, you know, all these ideas about grazing and, you know, graze period, rest period and animal impact was a big deal. But the one thing that I was missing for years and years and years was, in, uh, was the biological animal impact, right? I, I was always talking about the, the hoof impact and that physical stimulation on the soil. But you know, years later, it clued into me, but there's also a biological, right? There's, there's biology that yeah. comes out of the manure in the urine. And there's also food for biology that comes out of the manure in the urine. There's biology that comes out of the saliva. There's biology that comes out of the, the, the phlegm, right? That big gob of goo that's hanging out of that cow's nose that makes you gag. Am I the only one? But anyway, um, there's biology or we're food for biology. There's these symbiotic relationships and you don't get that off a tractor in a hay bind right? It just doesn't no. come. So it's a huge awakening when you, when you start to understand that there's, there's life in that soil. And that's the key component. The, the more life you can get in, in your soil, the, the bio, biology in the soil, the more free fertilizer you get. And that's like a huge step forward. Yes. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Uh, Ian always talks about, he'll ask the question, and I'm mentioning Ian, folks, Ian Mitchell Ennis, He's the one that helps me with our grazing school. He's a South African rancher. Uh, he, he farms over there. He ranches over there. He's got 14,000 acres and he runs around 6,000 cows. And he's been doing uh, mob grazing, holistic plan grazing, you know, adaptive, whatever you want to call it. He's been doing it quite a few years. And I heard um, Alan Savory was the first one to say publicly that Ian Michelinus was the first one in the world to get holistic management grazing correct, to do it right. <laughs> and Ian about fell out of a stool because he says, usually the guy's busting my chops. <laughs> That's a pretty big compliment. Yeah, yeah. So Ian's, uh, if you ever get a chance to hear Ian speak, he's locked down in South Africa now for the last two years. He can't, they can't travel anymore. But if he ever gets unlocked, I would highly recommend if you get a chance, he, he's a great, 
he's a great mind trust and he, he has a lot of really good information. But uh, Ian was the one that was telling me, Greg, how many tractors do you see out here kicking out baby calves? And what he's talking about, folks, is if you've got a limited amount of income, don't, don't be spending it on metal. Get livestock. Always invest it in livestock. Is that's, you know, you got manure coming out, you got the urine, you got the beautiful hooves, you got a baby being raised, and it's all being done with sunlight. It's our huge unfair advantage, and you've you got to capitalize on that. So Greg, I, that would be, I think, one of probably the questions that I would have. If someone's coming, they're new to agriculture. So Steve and I have run into this. There's been some fantastic movies and stuff put out on Netflix. Uh, Kiss the Ground's been a big one. And they've really pushed regenerative agriculture. And a lot of urban people are kind of catching on to this now. So what would you say to some of the urban people? And we've had a lot of this that come to us and they're like, you know, I don't know how to get into farming. I don't know how to help the regenerative agriculture movement, but I want to do something. I, I want to either get into farming. I want to, to move. What would you say to those people? There's, and I understand what you're saying there. There's a lot of people that have expendable income and you know, their hands are tied because you're right. They don't know how to farm. They don't know how to run animals. They don't even know where to start. And they kind of really want to get into part of it. And I get in that every week, people send me emails asking how, how, how can they help? And, you know, the best thing they can do is to start, you know, vote, vote with your mouth, what you eat. And if you're buying food from the grocery stores, you know, help those local farmers out, start buying their meat. You know, if you've got a lot of expendable income, maybe uh, look at uh, mentoring or, helping somebody go and get an internship or work at a farm to get experience. I've got a, there's people that ask me, work at, you know, I've got $750,000. What can I do with that? What can I do that to help this movement? You know, and that's a lot of pressure on me. I, I don't want, I don't really want to tell somebody, well, you got, you know, three quarters of a million dollars. This is what I do with it. Because if you do that, Steve, and then things go away for reasons out of your control, that darn Greg told us, you know, to do this. So I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, it's, I don't know. I'm just, that's just the way I am. I'm not going to tell people what to do with their money. But. Yeah. You have to guide them. The one, the one thing I'm working on a, 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 a grazing mentorship program right now. And one of the concerns that I had in there is that, you know, a lot of people will come to this or come to regenerative agriculture actually when, when times are tough, right. When their backs against the wall and they need a change. So for you just to go in and tell them, hey, this is what you need to do. You got to go do this, 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 and this. Well, they could go broke doing it because they don't have the cash flow. Like a lot of people don't understand the difference between economics and, and finances, right? It, something might be economical, but you can't cash okay. flow it. Or you can cash flow something, but it's not economical. But for you just to go do this, 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 and this, and they go broke later, you might be in trouble. So we have to guide them and let them make their own decisions is, is how I've always taken that. Yeah, and one of the things that I do encourage people is to educate yourself. There's a lot of great educational materials out here. Grazing schools, you know, go attend a grazing school, somebody that you admire or somebody that's doing it. And, you know, I have people come to our farm. I just had a guy here um, Saturday. They came and bought a guardian dog from us. And this guy works in New York. He's on Manhattan and he's bought a farm, you know, up in New York, uh, North Carolina. And he's like, Greg, I can't believe, you know, I watch your videos all the time. We have a YouTube channel. 
It's called uh, Great Judy Regenerative Rancher. And I post five videos a week. And uh, anyway, he watches it. He's, he's a diehard YouTuber. And when he came to our farm on Saturday, he goes, you know, we, we helped, he helped do a, a paddock move. And he goes, it's real. He was just shocked. He thought it was all Hollywood. You know, a lot of stuff they were talking about, is hot, but it's not, it's real. And so people need to see it. You need to physically see it. And then you start to really believe, well, okay, this does work. But, you know, I told people, Missouri is the show me state. That's what they call it. And so you got you to gotta show people, you know. I guess the next thing that I would ask is, what would you say to those people that are either into just crops right now that don't have cattle on their landscape, how they could get involved, or the people that have cattle but do continuous grazing, you know, maybe they move one or two paddocks throughout the summer, you know, what, what would be your recommendation to people to, to start on the process of healing your land outside of getting more information? Well, first of all, the guy that has the cropland and he's finally woke up that he needs livestock out there to get the biology going in his crop fields. Well, I say kudos to him, you know, just for even thinking about it, first of all, get it fenced, you know, get some fence out there. And if you're not, maybe you don't want to run cattle, maybe you don't want to fence, find somebody that is doing a really good job with their cattle. Somebody knows management intensive grazing or rotational grazing somebody knows how to handle cattle and has cattle, get those cattle on that cropland on a cover crop. Uh, you know, Gabe Brown told me years ago, he said, Greg, you know, if I had just started with cattle earlier in my life on some of this cropland, I'd be so much further ahead. And he found out, you know, the livestock, <clears throat> that was the missing link. And, you know, Gabe's got some land now, I think he's up to 11% organic matter. And he, he said, it's the cattle, it's the livestock, you know. In, in concert with those cover crops. Um, so absolutely, you've got to get the, the animals on that uh, cropland. We just had a guy here Saturday, 3,000 acres in Kansas. He's fencing it. He's putting fence on it of all things. And he's putting some water out there. I mean, this guy is sold. Oh, and he bought a baling roller from us. We, we sell ATV baling rollers. He wanted to get some carbon out there. So he's unrolling hay on it this winter. People get, are starting to get that. And that's exciting to me is to see crop farmers excited about soil life. Not all of them, but you know, there's a start or some of them are getting that way. For those, of those, for those of you that are continuously grazing, you've got one farm, one paddock. My challenge to you would be go out there and put one wire up, split it right down the middle. Put one wire up. That shouldn't be too intimidating. Just put up one wire and you'll grow twice as much grass. It's a simple thing to do. And once they see that, once they see that, then they'll be putting up more wires. But you've got to start. And a lot of people are just afraid. They're afraid to start. It's, it's a change. You know, we are humans. We are resistant to change because it makes us feel uneasy. Steve, you want to comment yeah. on that? Yeah, sorry. I was trying to find my mute button. <laughs> Uh, I'm a rookie at this. I obviously I haven't done this enough. Yeah, the, it, it is hard, especially in our area for the grain farmers to, you know, to get to that point, right? I've got one that I've been working with. I think the first time I swath grazed a, a salvaged crop for him was in 2002. And about three years ago, he finally kind of got the idea that he wants cattle on his land all the time. So he gave me a little hundred acre piece in the middle of it. And now we've got You're it as a pasture. So 
it takes a long time sometimes, but it's going there. I think we're making some big strides in the last five years. We've had some good promotion and, and now actually in our, our Canadian federal government has put a lot of money into some regenerative ideas and, and trying to kind of force this into us. So I think we're, we've got some really good momentum right now and uh, up here anyway. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I know a couple of the priorities are in, in you know, increasing regenerative grazing, increasing the use of cover crops and uh, managing or reducing the use of nitrogen fertilizer. Um, I think all are fantastic, uh, you know, steps forward in, in our, uh, in our systems. So for sure. That's great. Next up we have Clay. Go ahead, Clay. I see you're ready. Yeah. Yep. Uh, great, great stuff so far. Appreciate the discussion. I've, I've heard criticisms of online content like podcasts and Facebook and YouTube, which I would say uh, you guys, both of you produce quality, great quality content through Facebook and YouTube, uh, that it only facilitates change until mother nature pushes back and then people go back to doing things the way they've always done it. Uh, does that match up with your experience? And if it were true, how do we overcome that tendency to make sure that we're not just, uh, preaching to the choir with our content, but that people are being equipped to make lasting change on their operations. Yeah. So I, I get, uh, really some just fantastic emails, success stories from people that are, you know, watch the YouTube channel and, um, you know, I'm giving it away. I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't charge anybody. I just, people can go there and watch and, uh, you know, a lot of the YouTube, I shouldn't say a lot of them, but some of the YouTube channels is more for entertainment. And I, I do some entertainment, but you know, every time I put up a video, I'm trying to put a few good chunks of wisdom in there that people can take away from that. And people are busy. They're, they're very busy today. And I'm kind of that way. If I'm going to sit and watch something, I want to learn something. And if, I, if I'm not going to do that, well, then I'm not interested in watching it. So I get a lot of success stories from people that have tuned in. Um, they've come to our grazing schools or where I've talked at conferences, whether it's the no risk ranching idea about, you know, leasing land or the regenerative where we're using animals to heal, heal the land. Folks, people are starting to get it. And that's, to me, that's exciting. It's really exciting. So yeah, that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, I agree. We are making some, some big strides forward right now with, uh, with regenerative agriculture. Clay, the, the fact that people turn away from it, I think it's because of human nature, we're very impatient, right? If it's taken us 30 years to damage some land, right? We're not gonna fix it in one. And I'm going to say a minimum of four to five years before you even, you know, you really see a, a major difference. I mean, I've had years where I take over land and within two years, I'm like really excited that it's doing well. But if you hit a drought on year three, like we did right now, uh, this year, like I've had I, I, a perfect example. I took over a piece of property uh, three years ago. First year I went out there, it was severely understocked because I was out there the fall before. And there's lots of clover that had gone to seed. And they, they didn't have enough animals out there. It was continuously grazed, but it was not near enough animals. So I was like, yeah, this is going to take off next year. We got some good rain. Clover came like crazy. I'm out there grazing crops that are two and a half feet tall. Uh, fantastic for two years. Now we hit a drought. Boom, right? It, it didn't have enough time to 
to heal the soil, right? Yes, we got some, some, you get rain. It's amazing what happens when you get rain, right? Anybody can be a good grazer, but we didn't have enough time to heal that land yet. And this year it petered right out, right? It just didn't have it. Whereas some land that I've been managing for over 15 years, we didn't have a drought on that land this year, right? We honestly didn't have a drought. I didn't destock. I didn't change anything. It just, we just kept grazing business as usual because that land did not have a drought when we in a drought situation. So um, it, it does take some time. Most people, you get that one year that doesn't work and they just throw their hands up, say, oh, this whole thing doesn't work and they, and they walk away from it. It takes time to heal land. That's, that's my, I guess that's my, we need to have some patience. I, yeah. I think the um, only um, other thing that I would add to that too is that there is a time factor, not only in patience with what's ha- what we see happening on the land, but it takes time to kind of switch over, switch your brain over to like being able to fully take in what's happening out there. And I, I think that, I mean, we were at a meeting a little while ago and there was a more conventional person at that meeting and you could almost literally see his brain churning this stuff over and, and considering it. And it's not a process that can happen overnight. Like as your par- paradigms don't shift overnight there, you know, it's a process. And I think that that's probably one of the big things too. And I think the more that people hear that this is working in this location or this guy's doing this. I think the more people hear those ideas, the more likely they are to take one on at a time. And sometimes those don't work, but it's getting that paradigm to shift to begin with. I think that that's the, the process. We all need to think about when we're grazing our animals each day, folks, the animals that are tramping some of this forage on the ground, we all think, Oh, it's, I mean, I used to think this, I don't think this anymore, but, We've got to get comfortable with wasting some grass, leaving some behind. We all feel like, well, if we don't take it, it's gone. It's going to go bad. And we missed a golden opportunity to you know, put that on the back of our animals. Sometimes that grass is worth more trampled on the ground than it is run through the belly of an animal. And that's hard. It's hard for people to get over that. And droughts, if you can get through a drought, if you put a lot of carbon on the ground constantly, and you do get into a drought, and I've been in them. I've been in some bad ones. You know what? That litter bank will bring you through, but you you also have to do some management there. When you, it doesn't rain for 30 days and it's 90 to 100 degrees, you should have sold about 30% of your animals. You got to get rid of some animals quickly, and that way you can hold on to your best animals. You may have to sell another round of animals, but you know the, the quicker that you pull the string, uh, the, the lesser terms of drought, the lesser effects the drought has on you. So, yeah. That's for sure. And next we have Linda. Linda, you were ready? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, Greg, I am such a, such a fan. I've learned so much from your YouTube videos. And one of the things I like that I've really taken to heart is the way that you, uh, you're really adaptive. You do experiments you try things, you change things when they don't work. Um, another thing that I like is, is the diversity that you have. It's not just cattle, it's sheep, it's hogs sometimes. It's talking about your guard dogs. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you make the decisions about what you run and how you run those different types of livestock for regeneration. And, and I'd love to hear from yep. Steve and Amber about that too, please. 
Yeah. So on our operation, the way I look at it is, you know, we've got the sheep flock out there and we've got some older guard dogs. And so we kind of came to the conclusion we ought to have those older guard dogs training younger dogs all the time. There ought to be some pups out there all the time. And so that got us into another revenue stream of selling six month, eight month old, all the way up to year old, you know, trained guardian dogs. And so we kind of got into that. And then on the animal side, you know, we do, of course, the parasite, resist, parasite resistant hair sheep. Folks, you've got to raise an animal that is uh, no work for the next person taking it. People don't have time to be worming sheep. And so we sell a, a parasite resistant sheep and you know, we're not gonna worm them. We're not gonna do anything to them. They don't get anything other than sorted off their mothers and sold. But I think folks want a low input animal. And it's also, that's the kind of cattle we raise. So if you can build a name for yourself of having very low input, low maintenance, easy keeping, grass efficient, 100% grass folks, don't cheat, no grain, none. That's the kind of market that we've developed. And it's a really strong market. Now, if you're a grain farmer, I don't have a problem with you feeding grain. If you've got grain and you want to feed your animals, just go to town with that. But at the end of the day, folks, the most money to be made in ruminant agriculture is getting a group of animals that can make it solely on grass. And that's because I don't have to plant it. I don't have to plant it. I don't have to fertilize it. I don't have to mow it for hay. I don't do anything for it to it. Let the animals harvest it. So if you can keep your animals out there on the land, every day you keep your animals on the land, you're making money. Every day you put them up in a barn and feed them hay or grain, it's coming out of your pocket. It's that simple. So that's how we decide, Linda, kind of what we're running. And you know, I, we've, got, we've ventured off into mushrooms now. We're, we're raising shiitake mushrooms. Uh, we sell birdhouses. I've got a sawmill now. It, we do a lot of civil pasture. We got a lot of timber. So we're thinning our timbered lands. That works real good for the sheep. We can bring the sheep into those areas now. They're helping clean up the brush. Fantastic deer hunting, turkey hunting for our hunters. We sell hunts. We sell hunts. That's another revenue stream. I don't think you can have too many revenue streams. As long as it doesn't take away from your quality of life, Linda, don't bring something onto your farm that's going to take you away from your husband or your kids. If it doesn't, if it's going to ruin your quality of life, it's not going to last. It's going to be hard on you. Don't do that. Steve? Well said, Greg. Well said. What's the old story? You never have more cows than your wife can handle. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got to uh, look at the different profit centers and and work with them. If if you've got I remember one of the one of the phrases from the Ranching for Profit School years ago was the the easiest way to make more money on the farm is to stop doing things. Okay, so you know adding more and more profit centers all the time might be a good thing, but it could be a negative thing too. If five of your profit centers are making money and two of them are losing money, just get rid of the two that are losing money. Now there's lots of other things to weigh in and out of yeah. there. One of these days I'm going to buy a herd of goats, right? Because in our environment I think goats would work better than sheep to mix in with the cattle because the goats are browsers, cows are grazers, so they would mix better. And we are in a gray wooded soil zone, lots of, you know, if it wasn't for the bulldozers 50 years ago, all this land would be covered in trees. So we have a lot of shrubs, we have a lot of rose bushes, we have a lot of um, that type of forage and the goats would do quite well. 
a uh, little bit of the dilemma I have is the, the fencing, right? Trying to keep the, the goats in or the sheep in. Uh, how much money do you spend on the rented land? Um, so we're in, in that bit of a dilemma. We do have uh, a herd of pigs that we run and we keep them. We've got one area that we've got it, an extra uh, hot wire around the bottom so they don't get out. It's only a four strand barbed wire fence, but it's got that hot wire. So, you know, there's other other types of animals. All the grazing that we talk about and, and that we manage, it, it doesn't matter the type of livestock right? The system, the setup, the tools might be a little bit different, but the management's still the same. The, the concepts are still the same. So um, yeah, um, sheep, goats, bison, you name it, uh, you know, our, our, the grazing style, the regenerative grazing can work for all of them. So, I would say financially or economically, you can probably make all of them work. Human resource wise, which kind of goes to what Greg and, and Steve are saying, that's usually the one that that limits what you can do. Like even with us right now with our pigs, some years are better than others with the pigs. There's actually a huge demand for pork right now in our area. And I mean, we're sold out of pork already before we even went to butcher this year. Um, so huge demand. However, it's a lot of extra work. And so when it comes to the human resources part, that might be, we might decide to get out of pigs next year, maybe just because we don't, you know, our passion isn't really there. So I, I would say passion is a huge part of it. And if you have someone on your farm that has a passion for doing something, I would say, let them go and let them try it. They might not have a passion for it in a year or two, like the two goats we had, right, Steve, um, <laughs> might not have a passion for it in a year or two, but I would say, let that kind of be one of the guiding factors along with economics and your finances on what you choose to to step into or to step away from because if your passion's not there you're gonna it, you know you're gonna hate it you're not gonna put your effort into it and it's gonna fall apart <laughs> i just forgot uh, actually they weren't free no you we traded, traded a puppy you traded one of my 500 hundred dollar puppies for them <laughs> that makes it worse <laughs> shush just shush there, there's a llama we could talk about too okay <laughs> Anyway, next up we have Wyatt. Are you ready, Wyatt? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. All right. So this question might be fairly specific, uh, and it's about fence chargers. So I run a bunch of hopping genetic hair sheep in Stillwater while I'm in vet school, and I gained a, an adjacent lease. And so I'm probably going to upgrade fence chargers. But I was wondering just how much punch do you guys see that you need on some multi-wire high tensile fences? for it to carry like a mile away. Yeah, so how much, how many jewels do I typically go with? A multi-wire fence, is it Catron? Yes, yeah, um, you got it, yeah. that's 100% right. Okay, yeah, Catron. Um, one of the things you gotta be careful with, if you're in a rainfall area like ours, you know, we get 38 to 40 inches rain a year, and we may get 20 of that in, you know, 10 days. It's those wet, rainy periods that you need a pretty good charger. So you got vegetative load out there, lots of bushes and things touching it. I would, you know, that's why I go with the, somebody tells me, well, you know, you've got a hundred miles of fence out there. You need a 32 joule charger. Well, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to go with. I may go with a 36 joule. I'm going to get the biggest charger that I can for that piece of land. But now if you got, I have to warn you, you've got to make those chargers work. You can get overpowered. So let's just say you have 100 acres and you buy a 36 Joule to put on that. 
you're going to you're going to burn that charger up because what happens is the charger's not being made to do any work and so all the components the electronic components in that charger get hot and the lifespan on them is severely reduced so a charger needs to be working it can't sit out there without any load on it and it's going to fry it you're going to you're going to spend a lot of money and then your charger's not going to last very long um, and grounding systems don't ever go short on grounding. So if somebody tells you you need six ground rods, I'd put in eight. It's not going to hurt you any. It sure isn't. Uh, I see more chargers fail, more charging systems fail by having inadequate grounds. They don't have a good enough ground. So in droughts, droughts will kill you. That ground gets dry and those, those ground rods just don't, they're not grounding your fence. Yeah, that's what I'm planning on actually tying in the grounding system to like an existing, you know, just woven wire fence because you got all those T posts that are making nice little ground rods for you. That's not a ground. That's not a ground. Nope. Okay. That's not, nope, that's not a ground. Not in a drought. Not in well, a drought. They're not deep enough. Hatern, they're, they're not deep enough. There's a lot of them out there, but they're they're not in moisture. You've got to get those ground ground rods down in some moisture. So we're talking six, seven foot down. A steel post, you know, what, what do you, maximum might be two foot. Yes, you have 200 of them out there, but what if you get in a drought and you haven't had a rain for six months? You're not gonna, those animals are not gonna get shocked. Makes sense, thank you. Wyatt, you one, of the, one of the tricks that I do is I put my ground rod uh, in, a, in a wet area right by a dugout or on the edge of a dugout. Right? It doesn't have to go very deep because you're touching water basically with it. So I, I go with a smaller fencer. I use between a six joule and a, and a three joule fencer usually. My advantage to that is if you get a, a, you know, that size of fencer, I can get away with one ground rod because I move my fencers. Right? I've got multiple spots and multiple sites for them. So this way I have multiple smaller fencers that I run. But if I can put my ground rod right in a, in a wet spot, even when it's dry, I don't see, you know, I've, I've never really had a problem with not having power in the fence. So yeah, three joule or six joule is usually what I'm using, uh, but I'm not powering very much fence, right? Okay. I'll just power one area. And then when the cattle move to the next piece of land, then I move the fencer in with it. And then I power that area. So it's quicker to, what I've found is it's really quick to find any faults that are out there. And uh, yeah, that ground rod in a wet spot really helps is what I've found. Cool. Thanks guys. Um, next we have Scott. Scott's one of our regulars too. I think, yeah, I've become one of the regulars here. So, <clears throat> so this kind of, re this relates to um, Clay's question. I think actually I saw, I think it was Brian uh, made a comment too about like the cost of cover crop seed or the kind of questioning a lot of the practices right now. I guess one of my criticisms that I see in a lot of the like as he said, the podcasts and the videos and everything is that a lot of these systems seem to work well, or they, they look like they're working really well, but then the farms are selling either direct, have a direct market, or they have other sources of income. What I run into a lot is people say, it's really tough to switch over to something in a commodity market, or if you're not either near a market or, or like a direct market, like near a big city, um, or you just don't want to, if you just, you know, you're, you, you don't like the, the idea of having to spend all that extra time diversifying your, 
your operations. So um, I guess maybe the question is like in a lot of like, do you do you see people that are kind of more keeping just a standard operation and not expanding into like separate markets or custom grazing or stuff like that? Yeah, well, so my answer to that, Scott, would be if you're not willing to do direct marketing and, and work on your marketing endeavors, you really can't expect to do much more than what the cell barn or your know, mainstream agriculture is going to do. You've got to work on your marketing and marketing is, is huge. I, mean, <clears throat> I work on it all the time. Uh, I, I relay, I, you know, every day I'm working probably at least a couple hours, you know, just firing out emails, uh, maybe working on the website. You've got to hang your shingle out there. You got to let people know what you're doing. Um, there's a there's a pretty good marketing service here in the United States. A lady, some of y'all may have heard of her, uh, Charlotte Smith. Have y'all heard of Charlotte? It's called the Marketing from the Heart. And what she talks about is people don't buy your product because it's good. They buy your product because they want to be part of your life. They want to be part of your life story. Or as you you're telling people what you're doing. They want to be part of that. They're not going to ask you what you're asking for. In other words, they're not going to ask you the price is too high. They're going to pay that price because they want you to be successful. They want to be part of that. I think there's a lot to that. We have found the same thing. I mean, the more we work on our marketing, the better we do. I know farmers like to raise stuff. We like to produce, 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 and we don't like to work on marketing. But it, I hate to say it, but it is... Is, is part of it. And to be successful, I think you got, you got to be willing to do that or find somebody that's good at it and maybe bring them on and give them, you know, a percentage or something of your profits for helping you out with that marketing or make it, make it on a commission basis or something. Yeah, I agree. Great. Um, human resources, another one right there. That's marketing. That's getting out there. That's talking to people. I too do that couple times you know couple three hours a day pretty well always marketing always trying to to promote something it comes down to personality styles too some people just that's not their that's not their you know best asset by any means um there could be somebody under your own house or your your own roof that loves to do that different people have different uh, abilities or or interests or passions Um, maybe you can find someone else that that really wants to to do that marketing and promotion and I think I got off topic. I'm not sure I remember the original part of that first question, but. Uh... <laughs> no, I th- that was, that's pretty well what I was. Wh- I think that's kind of what I like what I was trying to get at. And um, I wasn't quite clear either because I was trying to figure it out too. But I, I think maybe in even that question of clays, um, <clears throat> like with the, that people fall off of it after, you know, maybe a few years of trying it and then it just isn't working and they cut out of it maybe maybe the marketing side or maybe that because it, it's tough to kind of start a new system and you can't quite sell it as regenerative until you've figured out what it means yourself and you're kind of in that it's in that I forget what they call it in business but it's in that there's that gap where you can't uh, it's kind of like transitioning to organic you can't there's that period where you're you're not quite sure what you're doing and you can't quite sell it that way so there's that there's that gap, I guess, there. So it might be a little bit easier to transfer over right now with the price of fertilizer. That's, that's true. Yeah. There's, and, 
and you know and that's that's actually going to be something interesting this year is that with the drought there's there should be some extra fertility left in that soil so there you could have a good year to it might be a year to be that you can get a little bit more out of the land than you would have expected so see scott i'm gonna kind of disagree with greg and steve but i'm gonna kind of agree at the same time i would say that if you are not the marketer you know if that if you're not that's not where you're good and where your passion is I would say don't try to do it because you're going to hate the farm at that point. I would definitely agree though, in the way that if you have someone in your household that can do it, even if you have to go out, like I, I can't remember what area you're in, but if like here in Alberta, we have egg communications uh, companies that, that do that for you. So if you could lean on them to kind of get things started up and running, and then maybe it only takes like five to well it'll take more than five minutes but maybe it takes only a little bit of time a day rather than having to start it all up yourself maybe that would be a better option for you and and to put a little I would say definitely think about if you aren't going to put the time into it time is money and be willing to put the money into it Um, because there are people that can do it and can do it well and so I would lean on those resources rather than necessarily forcing yourself to do it. Next up, Big Tom. Uh, Greg, I was just curious to know your thoughts on um, uh, how well sheep can uh, regenerate the, the soil as compared to cattle. Uh, I'm in western Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and a lot of the farms in western Pennsylvania were pretty small farms, 35, 40 acres. Uh, we're considered one of the bigger ones that we have 80 acres. And uh, there's just a lot of ground around that are small fields, three or four acres here, three or four acres there, the rest is all woods. And a lot of this ground has all been strip mined, including my farm. And I've been running cattle uh, on mine, rotational grazing now for, I guess the last six years. And it's made a huge difference in the soil. And I feel like the sheep have made a, a big difference since we've added them in as well. But just kind of looking at some of this other ground it's out and available it could be picked up for pretty cheap and with sheep it's pretty easy to transport them to those places and and graze those off i just wondered if you have noticed any difference uh if you have any places where you've just grazed sheep and not the cattle do you think those sheep can bring that ground around yeah absolutely um some of our some of our farms are just sheep i mean we don't run cattle on them. we just got sheep but i tell you the sheep graze differently than cattle. They, they move a lot and they're always moving, walking, 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 walking. And so they walk a lot of grass onto the ground. And so we've developed a one wire sheep. That's what we've got. Uh, we run one poly braid, it's 10 inches off the ground and it keeps our sheep in. And so with that high density, long, narrow strips, long, narrow strips, that sheep flock acts like a army. It goes up and down that strip all day long. And by the end of the day, or if we're on a two day or one day rotation, all the forage has been laid on the ground, uh, Tom. And so sheep are a huge tool. They've got a little bitty foot. You don't have to worry about them tearing up your land. They're not gonna pug it. In rainy conditions, you know, they're not gonna pug it. Uh, you don't have to worry about them destroying your ponds. They're not going to wade off into your pond. And 
they're going to clean it up. Uh, they will make a farm better. They'll make it a better cattle farm in not too many years by getting rid of all the thorn trees, the multiple rose bushes, all the brambles, they're just gone. And so to me, sheep's just a no-brainer. Uh, you, you really ought to have some sheep on your farm. But now if you don't like sheep, don't bring them on your farm. It's like <laughs> you, your passion, you know, you, you need to, you can't treat them just like a little bitty cow. That's what I was told to do. I'll just treat them like a little bitty cow. No, they're not a little bitty cow, they're a sheep. You know, and so they're, uh, they're a neat animal and uh, they're probably one of the higher profitable animals you can raise on your place. We, uh, we added a couple of uh, goats in with our sheep and we just joked that they're in the ride along program. They're eating things out there that the cows won't eat and uh, the sheep won't eat. Yeah, yeah. there's a big difference between graze grazers and browsers. Mm -hmm. I've got a friend that actually says that in every herd of cows that he grazes, he wants to have about 10% horses mixed in because that different species causes the, you know, a little bit better animal impact. If you've ever seen my donkeys run through the cow herd, right, they're kind of jerks and they, you know, they, it's the pecking order thing. So they chase them around and move them around because one's got superiority over the other one, right? So the donkeys run right through the middle of the herd, the cows all scatter. So can you, when you mix in sheep and cows together, is there a, the cows walk through them and the sheep run then, or, or what happens with that? If, if Do you have do any mixtures, Greg? Yeah, so we, we put, uh, I guess it was this spring, we put about 90 bulls. These are uh, two-year-old bulls, uh, yearlings up to two-year-olds. There was a few three-year-olds in there. And we put them in with our sheep flock with the guardian dogs behind a 10-inch wire. And uh, the intern's like, well, Better get ready. We're going to be getting up sheep, getting up cattle. They're going to get out. Those dogs chase those bulls for about five minutes. I mean, they chased them. And pretty soon the dogs came back and the tongues hanging out. And the bulls came back, their tongues were hanging out. And it was like, you know, it's just too hot to do this. And that was pretty much it. But the bulls stayed in on that 10 inch wire. And I know people, oh, you can't, you can't believe that. Well, they did. It's just because they have been trained. Those cattle, from the time they were baby calves, they've been trained on hot wire. And so they, they respect the wire. But I thought that was pretty cool. A sheep fence could hold in a, a bull, you know, a herd of bulls being chased by guardian dogs. Very cool. Next up, we have Aaron. Is this Aaron nervous? It is. It is. Hi, Aaron was one of our speakers last season. So hey. <laughs> go for it, Aaron. My question is on cow size. And the reason I'm asking the question is, is that um, we sell breeding stock here, uh, Angus. Um, we're a regenerative system, um, forage based, uh, planned grazing. You know, when I talk to customers, a lot of the times cow size comes up, type and frame and a few other things. And a lot of the times the, the, the guy will look at me and he'll say, Have you ever heard of Greg Judy? And I'll say, yes, I have. And then we kind of get into the conversation about cow size. And I know that, that you've, you've said in the past, and I've seen it on some of your videos, that you think a cow in the range of 1,050 pounds is an ideal cow in that type of system. But it seems like uh, farther north you go, we're in, we're in Manitoba, which is straight north of North Dakota, uh, about uh, two and a half to three hours. You know, our winters can be pretty severe. And I, I'm a believer that you need a kind of a, a critical 
thermal mass on an animal. And we yep. found that, I guess really whatever works for you is the cows that stick around are the ones that stay pregnant. They're the ones that aren't open. And our ideal cow seems to be in the 1250 to 1300 range. And I asked the question because a lot of people will also say about uh, wild animals like deer, probably down where you are, they're not as big as they are here, even though they're the same species. And do you think that ties in um, to the same principles as the cattle as well? And yeah, just like to hear your comments on that. Yeah, Aaron, that's a really good question and, and good comments. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, up in Canada, you're going to, a thousand pound cow is probably not going to be what you want. You may, you may be in that sweet spot. It sounds to me like you are. If you go down into uh, Texas, you know, the deer size down there, they're 60 pounds. There's 60 pound deer down there. Missouri, we're 130 pounds, 160. Um, up in Manitoba, you're probably over 200. I don't know, 250. So the further north you go, absolutely, you got to have a bigger body size or that animal's not going to make it through the winter. Ian, in Africa, I've asked him, what's his perfect animal size? And he said, it's 840 pounds. Now, they are in a different, they don't have winters in South Africa. I think they get snow about every 20 years, a little snow. So they're in a completely different environment than what we are. But Right here in the central Missouri, I know a lot of people are running 14, 16. Well, I did it. We used to custom graze those monsters. I mean, they were 1,800-pound cows. And those people are still running 1,800-pound cows, but they got really good jobs in town. And so it's a hobby. It's, it, there's no money being made. There's no money being made in those operations. The animals are too big. They're having to feed them. And I got firsthand experience with that because we were the ones feeding them. Uh, we would buy semi-loads of corn gluten, breeder cubes, you name it, to keep those animals going so they would breed back. My, I guess where I'm going with this is, in your environment, there is a sweet spot. And if you get out of that sweet spot, you got a high-maintenance animal. And you've heard me give that you know, description or comparison, you can run three 1,000-pound cows for the same amount of forage at two 1,500-pound cows a week. Well, you're going to have one more calf to sell because you got three of them, three cows. And the cows that are 1,000 pounds, they're going to have a, a lighter weaning weight on their calf, but that calf's going to bring more per pound at the sale barn. So we're in a heavy clay base here. We are. We've got heavy clay soils. And if we get 10, 12 days of rain in a row, I don't want 12, 1400 pound cows out here. I just don't. They will absolutely destroy our sod. And so I'm sold on, you know, our area, it's about a 950 to 1050 pound cow. That's where we've made our sweet spot. And it's, it's working, it's working for us. And I see so many people around us struggling. I see the grain companies coming out here, they're dumping grain out. I'm like, man, that poor farmer. He's got to buy, you know, 10 tons of grain to get that cow herd for another month of winter. It just doesn't make sense. So that's where I'm at with that. Yeah, Aaron, you pretty, you pretty well answered the question for yourself, I think, in your, in your question. My comment was going to be the farther north you are, uh, you need a bigger factory because the winter's longer, right? You need to be able to put on a lot of fat in a short amount of time. So you need a bigger factory. But yeah, you basically already said that, so... I agree. Yeah. Thanks.
Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Graham Gilchrist. Thank you, Greg. Uh, we're into, you know, it's winter sounds. So at some point in time, your farm's going to have a AGM and the owners are going to sit around the table. So help me understand. I understand certainly the regenerative approach is the how, but I'm going to ask the why question. How do you hold yourself accountable to the dividend rate you want to deliver or your percentage of uh, retained earnings um, moving up in a positive direction? Make that connection to me between your, your performance and your ability to deliver dividends to the owners uh, uh, in relationship to the how you do the work and how you generate the cash flow. Yeah, so if I understood your, your question, what, what, what is in it for the landowners? I mean, what are they getting from this? So we're taking- Well, not just the landowners, land, but, but the owners of the business. Else, the owners of which business? Your business, or a business, that business. You might have land as part of your assets, but ultimately you've got, you've got a series of owners. So you're, at the end of the day, owners being selfish, they want a dividend out of this whole process. I assume you do. I, I don't have any owner. I am the owner. Okay. I get 100% of my work efforts. I get rewarded for that, which I think, you know, that's, that's the American, uh, I say it's the American way. Capitalism. <laughs> I mean, if you work hard, you get a reward. If you don't, yeah, you yeah, don't. yeah. That's Graham, I, Graham, I think what we have to look at is to set up every farm even if it's just you're the you know sole proprietor we have to look at it as a separate company okay like we're an actual limited company so we have you know a bank account for the company and we have a bank account for personal and and money gets transferred back and forth we've got shareholders withdrawals and shareholders contributions that get calculated every year so i mean in some cases that business entity is already up and running right but if you're a sole proprietor and you're you know, managing that, we, we have to still separate that in our minds, the business from the personal. And that's a big problem with a lot of farms is that that's never separated. So yes, every farm is different. I'm not going to be able to say whose farm is actually paying dividends to the shareholders, but we should be, right? We should be paying our wages plus having some shareholder withdrawals occurring. So, I mean, that's it, my it, question, Greg and Steve, that's my question is, is I, I'm not sitting, sitting here challenging the how. My question is, does the how deliver ultimately to the owners? And, and do you see a business change? So, so whether or not it is, it is an acceptable profit level, whether or not the percentage of your retained earnings continue to grow, you know, in theory, yes, I know you may be a sole proprietor, but the, I, I will use the word dividend can you issue can you spin off 10 percent of your cash flow you know in a in a to your owners things like that to see you're not you're not having to spin it back into the business those are some of the questions of does 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 can you deliver that to us to an owner whether or not you you own the business yourself and you take all the the work or you've got other 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 owners around the table your spouse your kids however you want to do that my answer would be Yes, if the business yeah, so is we're, the... I mean, we have uh, in Green Pastures. Sorry, Greg, we got a bit of a delay there. You go ahead. I, I was just going to say we have a very uh, profitable operation in the form that as soon as our cattle put together enough money, we, we're buying farms now, the cattle are, 
and I've been able to quit my job in town. We've doubled our stocking rate with no debt. So when the cattle put back enough profit, they buy another farm and we buy more cattle. We don't have any debt, zero. And I couldn't have told you that 20 years ago. Uh, in 2001, I mean, we were in bad shape. I'm not gonna say you're in lie to anybody, we were. But we've been doing things right. And when we started focusing on the land and uh, you know recovery and the biology of the soil, things started happening and that's kind of where it's at today. I mean, it's a very profitable business. Yeah, this type of business can have a very positive cash flow as well, right? That's one of the reasons we're in here. For, for me, cash flow, profitability, um, my margin can be can be a lot higher. Like I've never, I, I do a calculation called a gross margin ratio and I can't find another profit center that has it as high of a gross margin ratio. So to me, it's a way of building cash flow and risk. One of the advantages we have, Greg, here is the fact that we have something called the Animal Keepers Act. So by doing a custom grazing, I, I'm guaranteed to get paid. Right. If, if somebody's not paying me, I have a lien on their animals that I can sell at auction, um, legally take them in and sell them. And I get paid that way. So there's lots of different reasons why you would do one type of business over another. And every environment's different. Every situation's different. Um, and we have to make those decisions. That's why running your economics uh, and, and finances together. Right. That's so important for every business. So you can't just say, you know, this type of business is going to be successful because in some situations that type might not be, or in some, on, on this farm, it works. And in this farm, it doesn't because of, you know, one reason or another. So kind of a tough, tough, tough question or uh, yeah, question to answer, but uh, yeah, it's doing, doing well. I'd say that's an awesome question, Graham, because I think that there is, people in all industries that can make money and there's people in all industries that can lose money. And that's not just specific to agriculture. I would say that the, the most important thing is knowing your numbers and making decisions based on numbers, as well as the passion and the people side of things and everything else, all the warm fuzzies. Um, but I think if you don't know what your numbers are, you're going to lose money uh, when it comes down to it, would be my thoughts. Next up, we have Anthony. Anthony, are you ready? So we're located in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, and our pastures are fairly degraded. And so we had a lot of small locust trees, two, three inches, and we've been taking some of them out, kind of selective, um, to try to get more grass. We also feed some dry hay, but mainly wet hay uh, for the higher protein for dairy cows. And we've noticed, like, the, um, the, the, the grass doesn't seem to come back quite as good after a wet bale. Um, this fall, we tried uh, no-tilling some winter rye into it and it didn't seem to come up really well. Um, is there something different in wet hay versus dry hay that it, the fermentation causes something to react or are we putting it on too thick? Or I think my first uh, response to that would be if it if it didn't come back very well, you put down organic matter that was trampled and you had some urine and some poop and some stepping on that, laying on it, and it didn't come back well, you probably had it on there too thick. You might have actually, you know, crowded out some of your grass. Because we never see that. Any place we, now, we don't feed, we don't feed wet hay, we feed dry, but 
uh, we make sure when we're even feeding dry hay, you can't get it on there too thick or it will kill out your soil. Does it make a difference? Some of this is it like it's um, in some wooded sections where there wasn't a whole lot of grass. Do you think the biology is just fairly dead or um, is it still yeah, like putting it on too thick? Yeah, Anthony, that if it's in a, a wooded area where you maybe did some clearing and there's not a real good strong sod of grass in there, absolutely. It's going to take some time to get that turned around. But in time, be patient, be patient. It will come if you do it correctly. We've got some beautiful civil pasture areas now that are just within three to four, well, some of them are older than that, seven to eight years. It's a solid stand of grass under those trees now. But it, it did take time. Yeah, interesting, Anthony. I'm, I'm curious about the biology of the fermented biology versus the, unferm you know, just, just putting dry hay out there. Uh, any, if anybody else is uh, on here and they've actually had the same experience, by all means, throw that in chat. Uh, maybe someone else can help Anthony too. So I'd agree with uh, Greg on that too. Maybe it was too thick, um, depending on the quality of it. Usually what happens when I bale graze is, is I'll get dead spots if the feed quality was really poor, right? If I was feeding a moldy hay or a um, one year we fed pea straw residue or pea straw bales. And of course, you know, it'll pretty mature, not, you know, not very high in protein. We ended up having dead spots for about three years because it just it didn't want to grow through it. It was too thick. And one of the things with lower quality feed, like putting straw out there as well, is the it, it binds up nitrogen for a while, right? If we don't add the nitrogen with the carbon, then the, the CN balance is out. And the biology that kicks into gear to decompose the straw or the lower quality feed um, uses up a bunch of the nitrogen when they decompose the straw, well, their bodies die and that nitrogen's returned, but it's a temporary, you know, a tie up of, of nitrogen. So you might have a lower production with low quality feed as well, or low quality material. But again, um, interested about the, I've never fed wet silage bales or anything either, so. Great, next up we have Larry Wagner. Hi, how are you doing today? My question for Greg is that uh, I have two, entering the farm with me and they are looking to expand the operation of grazing. In our area, you cannot get land like you talk about being able to rent and improve it. I was wondering what your thoughts would be to help them get started. Yeah, so if they can't um, get land in your area, you know, you, you can't have roots. You know, you got to go where the land's at. I mean, you can't, you just can't magically, you know, wave a lawn and get land. You got to go where it's available. I didn't catch where you're from, Larry. Where do you live at? I'm at Vernon, uh, Manitoba. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the same way down here in the United States. I mean, there's areas in the United States where leasing land just doesn't work. And most of those places are where there's a lot of cropland. Um, you know, there's people up in Illinois, they're getting, you know, $400 an acre cash rent on some of that land. Uh, Iowa, 354, you can't compete with that. And so as a young person, you gotta go where the land's maybe not quite as good. Uh, maybe go where there's, uh, I, I call them ugly farms. I gave a talk at Joel Salatin's here about a month, two months ago, and they were asking me, what's your secret? I said, ugly farms. I go, I go where there's ugly farms. And uh, that's, that's what I want is 
something that uh, is broke down, doesn't have any fence, no water, encroachment of brush, and I can get that lease and I can get it economically. You can't give a ton of money for a lease and then go in there and build that lease up if you're paying the owner a lot of money. You can't do that. I would, my suggestion to your young fellows that want to get into farming, they got to go where there's some land that's not around uh, high population centers. It's got to be out away from high populations and it's got to be an area where there's not any cropping being done. That would be that would be my suggestions. What about you, Steve? Yeah, it's really tough to compete on on high priced land, right? I'm right next to the black soil zone. I don't have very much land in that black soil zone. I got one, and I pay way too much rent. Um, it is all to the west in the gray zone. Like Greg says, ugly land, lots of rocks, lots of peat, lots of bush, shrubs, rose bushes. Right, guys try and farm it once in a while, but once they get tired of picking rocks, then it, it usually goes back to pasture. You got to go to where the economics works, right? For me to, um, I, I got a farm, my family farm is back in Saskatchewan and uh, just wasn't working out. There's too much demand there, uh, all the grain farmers that are there. So I ended up moving up here and, and you know, in the forested area that's got lots of grazing land and that's I can make this work. Right. So down there, I'd probably be doing something a little bit differently. So um, again, it comes down to that. maybe they need to, uh, you, you said it was, you were breaking up there during the first part of the question. You said you had two sons trying to take over. Yes, I do. Okay. Maybe they need to find a farmer's daughter somewhere in some ugly land. Or ugly land. <laughs> Don't say that the wrong way. I said ugly <laughs> land. <laughs> So that would be would your try. other option too, is if there's areas that are like, like we managed to pick up, we don't own the majority of our farmland. However, we managed to pick up a 33 acre piece of bush for next to nothing. So maybe you can pick up a piece of bush and run goats and pigs in it, or, you know, look outside of that cropland that's, that's ridiculously high priced. Right. Next up we have Laurel and... So I am interested in sheep. Um, one of my obstacles is lack of uh, good breeding stock in our area. Um, I love the idea of not worming, but I'm wondering about how to go about that when everybody around here uses dewormers. Do I try and import some that are not adapted to our area and then you know go that route or do I take what's locally adapted and try to breed in parasite resistance? Yeah, so uh, probably probably the most uh, economical uh, way and probably the most sustainable or sustaining way would be to get some sheep and um, before you get them, make sure you got fence that can hold them and start a good rotation with those sheep, Laurel, and you know, trying to move them at least every couple days. Don't worm them. Just don't worm them. And out of that group, don't don't go out and buy 200 of them. Got you know, buy 10 or 15, whatever. And out of that group, there's going to be some of those ewes that can take your management and keep those. And, and the ones that get dirty tails, get thin on you, get bottle jaw, whatever. Uh, they don't breed. Get rid of those. And then keep the ram. Get get you some good ram lambs out of there. And uh, start, you know, start with that. 
if you go out and buy the genetics, I don't like you said you're having trouble even finding them in Canada. I, you know, that may not even be a, a way for you to go. Surely there's somebody in Canada that's not wearing sheep, but I, I don't know. Um, Possibly may um, know somebody. We don't have a lot of sheep in our region, so it's definitely a challenge. But I'm sure they're around somewhere. <laughs> But you can build, I mean, if you, a lot of it you're grazing, Laurel, I mean, don't let sheep build a campsite. So sheep always will go to, you know, go to sleep at night. They get them a place where they lay down. It's going to be on the highest point in that pasture you've got them in. And if you leave them there, let's say five days, they're going to go back to that same spot every night and they're going to poop right there. And so they're re-ingesting themselves, reinfesting themselves with parasites or if you're moving your sheep let's say every two days they don't really have a chance to get infected so that's a lot of it and don't let your sheep graze the grass down too short the parasites live in that first two inches right above the ground and so if you're making your sheep eat that grass too short they're ingesting a lot of parasites all right thank you yeah i don't have a lot to add to that um parasite management there's th three things that you, you look for. Uh, the rotation, what Greg just explained, uh, the nutrition of the animals, right? Getting them the proper diets that a, you know, a ruminant is supposed to have. I think that's a big benefit to keeping their immune system strong and their hormonal system strong um, so that they can naturally fight off uh, parasites. And then again, then it's the genetics, right? You start selecting for animals that don't get the parasites and you will clean up your herd. It might take a while. Uh, I would you know, definitely do it on the years when cull prices are high because um, you might end up culling higher. But yeah, definitely uh, genetics just takes some time to build that up and they'll get, you know, you'll naturally weed out the ones that don't work in the system that you're trying to develop. I want to add one more thing to that, Steve. If, if Laurel will stick to her guns and just dedicate 10 years to this, within nine to 10 years, there's going to be people knocking Laurel's door down trying to get a hold of the Hirsch genetics. I'm serious. That's what'll happen. So stick to your guns, give it 10 years, anything good in life, it takes 10 years to do it. So just be dedicated. And in 10 years from now, I'll probably be reading about you. You'll have parasite resistant sheep. I agree. Those, those genetics are huge. Uh, next up, Sam McClay. Sam, are you ready? Hi. Awesome. So we are been bee farmers uh, from my parents and we're just starting to try to get to the direct marketing and something we're struggling with is figuring out how to balance with I guess figuring out how big our market is so how many any any uh recommendations for figuring out how many animals to plan to butcher to direct market when you're first starting out when you first start direct marketing first of all you should eat that animal yourself first don't go out and try and sell something that you haven't eaten. Uh, I've talked to people that raised sheep for 20 years and they've never eaten one. They never ate a sheep, not one. And so before you start selling grass-fed beef, make sure that you've got a decent product. It's hard to sell the whole animal sometimes. And so if you're just starting out and you have trouble with customers, I would suggest going with hamburger. Develop a good hamburger market. Sell them as hamburgers, because when you sell it as hamburger, it's all tender. Grind it. Once you get a good hamburger market and you 
find out that your stakes are pretty good, well, then you can move into stakes. But family and friends, uh, co-workers, uh, you can't advertise in a newspaper. We didn't get a single call that way. You, you can't do that. You do need a website. I, I believe a website will help you for sure. You know, maybe develop a blog. Get a blog on that website telling people what you're doing. Uh, you've got pot roast for sale. You, your freezer's running over with pot roast. You need to get rid of some of them. You know, that blog, that blog gets people back to uh, your farm. But don't raise so many the first year that you have to sell them at the commodity barn. I wouldn't do that. He didn't say how big your farm was, how many you're raising, but, you know, starting out, you just got to start small and then start working your way up. That's what we've done. Okay, thanks. We have about 100 heads, so. It ends up being a little bit of a roller coaster when you get started too, Sam. Um, things can change, right? You'll you'll all of a sudden get going and things are going to go good and and you're going to have too many customers and not enough product. So then you increase. We're okay, we're going to sell more. And then all of a sudden something will happen, economics drop or change or something. All of a sudden you got too much product and not enough demand, right? This is not unique in, in any, you know, in, in agriculture. Every business has that, right? Things go up and down. So just be ready for that. Like don't, don't expect it just to keep exponentially going up, right? All of a sudden you'll get a, a, a change in the economy and all of a sudden everybody's, whoa, we can't afford, you know, can't, we're going to go somewhere else because we can't afford this anymore. So it's an up and down market. Be prepared for that. Uh, but just keep trying to grow it, you know, slow and steady is, is what my advice would be. Don't. A big virus will hit. Yeah, <laughs> and that'll change the market. These little tiny baby COVIDs that can change everything. <laughs> and definitely, I agree with Greg. Do not sell at the auction house. Because Steve, how much should we get? And how many pigs did we sell? 10? 10 pigs? Oh, yeah. Well, a few years ago, we, we were expanding and getting bigger. And, and all of a sudden... Uh, I had my animals in for butcher and it was a week before I hauled them into butcher and the place that I was renting as a freezer space to store all this frozen meat they canceled on me told me they weren't going to start the freezer this winter it wasn't they couldn't afford it and they're shutting the whole freezer down so I'm like ah you know the deer in the headlight look what do I do with all this pork um, so I ended up you know did a mass marketing and tried to sell halves and holes as, as quickly as I could Ended up at the end, I had 10 pigs that I didn't, I couldn't sell and I've got no place to put them. So I said, you know what? I'm going to the auction mart with them. I don't care if I'm losing money, I'm going to the auction mart with them. So just the background story to this, I bought these pigs in the spring for $100 a piece, raised them all summer, right? All my love and pride and feed and care and, you know, scratching them behind the ear and all those good things that I did, took them to the auction mart. I averaged $39 and 50 cents a piece for the pig per pig. Per pig. <laughs> I'm like, I, I should have made dog food, right? Hindsight should have just made dog food. And it was November. I could have thrown them in the freezer outside and just, you know, doesn't matter if they thawed out a little bit. Um, but yeah, $39 and 50 cents <laughs> per pig. Don't do that. Bad Ooh. idea. <laughs> Next up we you have Etienne. That's a good way to go, bro. <laughs> very quickly, Greg. Very quickly. <laughs> All right. Hey, Greg. Thanks for coming on. Uh, big fan. Been following with you a while. So I got 40 ewes this year to start uh, start a hair sheep flock. And I got 30 of them. They're American black bellies. I don't know if you know this, but to make the American black bellies a good 
range you and good mothers and everything, they bred him with buffalo, the wild sheep. And I didn't take that yes. into consideration. So I've got them trained to daily moves along with 10 Katahdins. But whenever I tried to concentrate and to get higher impact, my American black bellies aren't a big fan of that idea. And they're quite yeah. agile. Yeah. They can graze on their back legs to graze out of a tree like a goat or whatever. So they'll go over it, underneath it, wherever. So my question is, is this nutrition thing with the black bellies you reckon compared to the Katahdins? Is it just an instinct they've got to roam? Or is it the specific fur to use? What are you thinking about yeah, that? So, uh, yeah, the, the Barbados, the Barbados black belly or the American black belly, you know, um, they are very, very good athletes. They love to jump. They can jump over your head if you're out. Uh, <laughs> I've <yeah>. seen it happen. <laughs> yeah. You got to protect your face. When you're in a corral full of black bellies, you better have your hands up. They're going to hit you right square in the nose. Yep. I was making a move so, once. I had one cell right past me, bad, right at head height, just whoop, right beside. I got nervous yep. and decided to jump instead of walking through that gate. <laughs> they're they're one they're wonderful sheep, though they really are. They're they're good mothers. Uh, they're very hardy sheep. They can live on cockleburs. You know, they, they just yeah, they just thrive on other things that other sheep would die eating. But right. uh, they have that. They have that athletic problem to them. They like to jump. So it's a genetics. That's what they are. Okay. So would you recommend just maybe giving him wider space? So do you think it'd be worth it to maybe give him wider space at the beginning to retain those genetics and then call him once the next generations are on with Katahdin and Rams to maybe calm him down? Or would you just yes. too much of a headache right I'd cross as soon as I can get rid of him? I would cross him. I would cross him on to a good hair sheep breed, Katahdin would be a good one, St. Croix, yeah. uh, Florida native. Keep that, keep that black belly gene in there though. Okay. One of our best, one of the best shoes in our flock is a Barbados out of that original group I brought in Texas almost 20 years ago. She okay. is a, yep. Perfect, perfect. Cause I did find some Katahdin Rams um, out near where Steve is and the lady specifically breeds for uh, parasite resistance and a bit like Joel Salton does. So for that other lady that was looking for somebody, um, Ryan Rock Farm near Edmonton, maybe let her know or whatever, I'm sure she's listening now. But uh, anyway, so that was my idea, but I started to wonder whether it was too much of a heartache to be worth it, maybe to put up with the girls or glad, <laughs> glad to have yeah. your opinion on that, thanks. Oh, and as far as them yes. getting out of the electric fence, you think they could be retrained? So I have them trained to free wire if they're content. If I get a hotter spark, you think they could change their mind as to maybe that it's not worth crossing again? No, once they, well, now my experience has been once you have a fence jumper, yeah, you, you've always got a fence jumper. You gotta, All right. you gotta sell them or you shoot them and eat them. <laughs> I've shot the one already, but the rest of the flock, I just, I don't really want to shoot 30 out of 40, if you know what I mean. <laughs> So you got to sell, you need either to call them or go, go back to net wire. You can try, you can try that. Put them on I've, net wire. And they, my original, they jump that. but they kept getting their little horns caught and getting injured and stuff. They got caught three times in a row in the span of 48 hours. So that's when I moved down to Polywar. But anyways, I'll, yeah. I'll, cro I'll cross them and then call them. 
It's Thanks not worth putting up with those athletic girls, I tell you. No, no. <laughs> they're, they're all right, but my God, you come home from work and they're down in the neighborhood or down the road and they once traveled three kilometers in 15 minutes on me while I was getting the quad to chase them down. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like fun. So we have one more question for the night. So next up, we have Vern Crone. Vern, are you ready? Yeah, I am. Perfect. Hey, Greg, I've been watching your YouTube videos for quite a while. I'm wondering if you, what you've determined to be the perfect stock dog to you or sheep ratio. I'm just new to the game, buying some guardian dogs right now. And I'm wondering how many I should get. We've just, we've just purchased a small flock of a couple hundred and just getting into it. I'm, I'm wondering how many dogs it should have. Thanks. That, that's a great question, Vern. Um, a lot of it depends on the terrain. Uh, and how big your paddock size is your sheep are in. To give you an example, our sheep are being strip grazed every day of the year. So the biggest paddock they'll be on at one time is probably gonna be uh, probably two to three acres. So I can get by with two dogs. If you're in woolly area, you got a lot of brush and you're giving your sheep, let's say 10, 15 acre paddocks and you've got some hills in there, you're definitely gonna need Two, it'd probably be better to have three dogs in an environment like that. And it also depends on the breed of the dogs. Pyrenees, they like to roam a little bit more on the exterior. Uh, the Merima, I, I love the three-way cross. The Merima, Anatolian Shepherd, and uh, Anatolian Shepherd, Merima, and Pyrenees. Three-way crosses. They, they just work so good for us. And they always guard within the sheep. So when you come into our flock, there's the dogs. They're always laying in the middle of the sheep. And so another thing you want to think about, Vern, is something could happen to that dog. If you've got two and it's working real well, what happens if one of those sheep get killed and one of those dogs dies? Are you going to be able to find another trained dog within a week or two? Probably not. So you should always be thinking about, okay, I've got a couple good dogs out here. I'm going to have me a six-month or maybe a, a 12 or 14 week old puppy out there. You need to be thinking about that because dogs die. They get hit. The bad ones will get out and get roaming. and they get hit by cars. Um, they could get killed by a predator or whatever, but I'd never want to be short of dogs ever. Better to be looking at them than looking for them in your, in your mind. Okay, thank you. That's right. If you ever run short of dogs though, I got a llama for you for free. No, thank you very much. When we originally started, we were running them. We had a had a makeshift flirt going on. We were running them with some horses, and we went for we went for a year without any predation with with that flirt. But we had a had a bad group of coyotes either move in or 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 they found out where the food source was. So we've we've had to move to dogs now. So thanks for that. I'll 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 get in the market. I don't know if I have any good dogs. I have two pups right now. So um, we'll see if they're any good. But I will. I'll, I'll phase some more in here really quickly. Thanks. Watch those puppies. Um, you can you can turn them. It's partly your job to make sure those puppies turn into some good dogs. Okay. And that is when you walk in, when you walk into that sheep flock, whether you're moving them or feeding the dogs or putting out some mineral for the sheep, always keep a four or five foot stick with you with a black trash bag duct tape to the end of it. And if you see those puppies do something stupid, you holler at the top of your voice, no, 
and hit the ground. Never hit the dog, ever. Don't ever hit a guard dog. Hit the ground at his feet and say, no. And all you gotta do is lower your voice. And if you're very consistent with that, those puppies are gonna get the idea that you don't like them chasing sheep. You don't like them when they harass the sheep. You don't like it when they follow you back to the truck. Never let a puppy follow you back to the gate, ever. That puppy should stay with those sheep. That's up to you. you. You can do that. So are we right then, in your estimation, are we right? Like I've got them locked with, I've got some gentle little lambs here, about five or six gentle little lambs, and I'm getting them acclimated to the sheep and they're, they're segregated in the pen. We're going in and we're socializing them to humans and feeding them, but we're not spending a great deal of time. Their family are those sheep. Is that the, that's the right methodology then? It is, but you also, Vern, you need to get a hand on those dogs. You need to let them know that Vern, Vern's a good guy. Yes. All Vern's going to do is pat me on the head and say, good boy, then Vern's going to walk away. You're not going to sit there and baby, baby, baby. I mean, you're just going to give them a, you need to be able to catch that dog. And if you just give him a pet on the head and say, good boy, and all of a sudden, boy, he really likes that. And then you just walk off. You don't need to sit there and just pet and pet and pet and pet. You'll have a pet. That's what you'll have. You'll have a pet. Awesome. Uh, so, Greg, do you have time for one more question? We've had a couple people request for this one to be answered. I'm, I'm good. Let's do it. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Karen, are you ready to go? Okay. So, Greg, I heard, I, first of all, as a, uh, heard about your, um, I forget what it was, whether it was a podcast or whether it was some video or something where you talked about uh, Gabe Brown had kind of suggested to you to, to grow cover crops and you had a, you kind of disagreed with with him on that and I was just wondering if you would maybe go go a little bit more detail than what you had before. What happened Karen was uh, we were hosting the uh, grass fed exchange and we were one of the farm tours that year and Gabe Brown was there and there was about 300 people out on our farm and we just moved the mob out into this bottom and this bottom was full of clover and orchard grass and brome and fescue and bluegrass and there were some uh, lespidees in there. There's probably 20 different species of grasses and legumes in there. And Gabe walked right up and he boomed out. He goes, well, where's your cover crop? <laughs> I'm like, what? What do you mean? He goes, you need a cover crop in here. And I mean, just blanket statement, you know? I'm like, well, Gabe, I said, my cows are fat, they're shiny. They all had calves. The calves are doing good. I only sick calves. I said, why do I need a cover crop in here? So he just, if you don't have a cover crop, it's just, that was a bad thing. And so that, that's where that came from. But if you've got broken land, the one thing you gotta be careful with, Karen, cover crops are fine, but what if they don't come up? I've got a neighbor up here, he's had two years of drought in a row, $5,000 with the cover crop seed, and he doesn't have a single plant up hardly. He lost $10,000 in two years putting in cover crops. So be careful. All I'm saying is if you're starting out and you don't have a lot of money, I'm not going to buy cover crop seed. I'm going to buy livestock. I'm going to put it in livestock every single time. And mm -hmm. there's nothing more profitable than a perennial pasture. And even Gabe will say that at the end of the day, your goal is to get your land into a perennial, something you don't have to plant every year. Because if you've got to plant it every year, that's money coming out of your pocket, Karen. Doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. 
So that's where all that came from. But I'm not a I'm not down on cover crops. It's just we we had a little deal that <laughs> it was all it was all good. <laughs> Did you I've ever try growing cover crop mix or or not? Yeah, we did. We did. I, I bought uh, $7,500 worth from um, Dave, oh, Dave Brandt. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah $7,500 worth. And we put in about 100 acres, so it was $75 an acre. And on our land, our, and I, I drilled that right into our perennial pasture, okay? And it was warm season. It's a warm season cover. And I got the darndest stand. I mean, it came up. On the good land, on the poor land, I got nothing, nothing. Oh, no. So, yeah. So it ended up costing me about $150 an acre for the cover crop. It was a good learning experience. I mean, yeah. You got to be careful. <laughs> cover crop season, it can get very, very expensive. I've yeah. been in that boat too. You know, on a dry year, it, it doesn't work because water is your most important nutrient. On a good year, man, my cover crop looked fantastic. But the big difference yeah. is, is what's your purpose on that cover crop? Are you on grain land? You're trying to build that soil. You're trying to heal it. Then it's a powerful tool. But if you're on pasture land and, you know, we've had my biggest frustration over the years, people always complain, why don't you like cover crops, Steve? Well, I do, but they have to be in context. Um, there's so many, you know, seed salesmen out there that are telling people to rip up their pastures you know, tear out that perennial pasture and put in a cover crop, to me, that's a step backwards, right? Yeah. So I, th I think it all comes it down is. to context. And, and that's actually one of uh, Gabe Brown's um, principles is context, like what's the situation at the time. So um, I, I know that's not his, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't just go around pushing cover crops all the time. But I mean, we've got to look at the context of every situation. But yeah. Uh, yeah, if you've, been, if you've been growing canola for 10 years in a row, Put in some cover crops. Go for it. Yeah, because cover crops to me are kind of like um, a replacement for weeds because weeds, cover crops are the annuals, right? The weeds are the annuals. Most most weeds are. So the cover crops are kind of that uh, successional, desirable successional mix that you want in, in your on your land rather than the not desirable stuff. Okay, let's uh, shut this down, Amber. Um, yeah, Greg, yeah. if you uh, want to give a little final uh, uh, close out, that'd be great. Um, you mentioned a school and I think you got a book or a, I think three books. Why don't you mention those to everybody? Yeah, so I'll just put this one up here. Uh, this is my new one. I don't know if you can read that or not, but it's Greg Judy's How to Think Like a Grazer and Inspiration Mentors and Getting It Done. So I just wrote that. It just came out a couple months ago. Um, that is my third book. And then you can go to our website, uh, greenpasturesfarm.net. Uh, no Risk Ranching is my first book. And then Comeback Farms, I uh, wrote that one eight years later. And that kind of takes off from where the first one was. But just to wrap it up, Steve, um, you know, uh, Jan and I, uh, we like always challenging uh, what's working. We're not afraid to try new things. And I, I guess I've been we just talked about Gabe a while ago. So I'm gonna steal one of his quotes. And Gabe is always talking about, you should try and fail at at least one thing a year. And if you don't fail at one thing a year, you're not trying enough new things. And so I really do like to see my neighbors uncomfortable. And so I'm gonna do things different. And when I, my neighbors start talking about me, 
That's good. So you gotta, you gotta have your neighbors talking about you. If they're not, you've fallen back into your mold. So don't be afraid to try new things. You're never gonna find, find out if you don't try. So I'm all about that. But folks, we are in a great business. This Regenity bag with ruminant production, I'm telling you, uh, there's just no better way to make a living as far as I'm concerned. And with what's coming at us, you hear all this stuff about, you know, how bad animals are for the land. We've got a great story to tell. And so we should be screaming it from the top of our lungs. Folks, we've got it. We're, we're on the leading edge of this thing. So I think everyone should be proud of that and tell everybody you see what you're doing, invite them out to your farm, be a sound piece out there because there's more of them than there are us. We've got to, we've got to be heard. Okay. So that's, I'm going to end with that. Thank you all. And it's been a pleasure. Thank all of y'all for checking in tonight. This has been awesome. I see Vern clapping. I think I'm going to clap along with him. This was awesome, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us. And for anyone who wants to hang out, we're going to stay, keep the room open for as long as you guys want to, to stay in chat. So thanks again, Greg. You're awesome. And I can't wait to have you out again sometime. <laughs>